Cassian seemed awfully confident that nobody was listening to the prisoners in the ninth episode of Andor, which was even titled Nobody's Listening. And in episode 10, of course, he turned out to be right. But how was he so sure? Well, he was an Imperial prison before, so he probably knows how they operate, but it's all based on a real-world concept called the Panopticon Effect. I am not going to pretend I was smart enough to know about that until about a week ago, when Star Wars High Republic author Daniel Jose Older did a really cool Twitter thread about it, which I will link to in the description. Also, he's awesome, and you should read his books, Midnight Horizon is sick. But the basic idea was that you could put an observation tower in the middle of a circle of prison cells, the guard in the tower could see the inmates, but the inmates couldn't see into the tower. The prisoners wouldn't know if or when they were being watched, so they would start to assume they were being watched constantly. The idea of constant surveillance would create regulation and discipline. As Older describes it in his thread, a guard would only have to prove their existence once or twice a day, and then the prisoners would assume someone was watching them all the time. The prisoners would start to guard themselves. If that sounds familiar, you might already recognize it from another Star Wars story. We only got to see the Republic prison on Coruscant a couple of times in the Clone Wars, but it was a very panopticon design. A tower in the middle with a bunch of cells and a tall circular building. While that prison had shields to keep prisoners inside, on Narkeena 5, one of the very first things the guards tell Cassian is how the facility is minimally invasive. Kino notes that the guards only show up to pick up the dead and bring replacements. The prisoners can barely see the guards, even in the workroom. All the guards have to do is turn on the floor for the least productive team, and then turn it on at night, and that provides the illusion that the prisoners are constantly being watched. Add to that the voice that demands everyone stay on program, which is literally listed as the voice of God in the credits. It feels omnipotent and all-knowing. But really, it's just 84 or so apathetic guards watching over nearly 5,000 prisoners. And once the inmates learned that, well, we saw how episode 10 went. To expand on this a little bit more, several Star Wars podcasters and YouTubers and I got the chance to speak with Andor production designer Luke Cole and costume designer Michael Wilkinson about their work on the series. I asked them about creating the prison and what the design of oppression looks like to them, so I'll play my question and answer here first, but I'll include the rest of the questions and answers from all of the other shows as well. I really love the prison arc. I think Narkina 5 is very different from what I think most people would imagine a prison to be. It's bright, it's clean, there's no bars, there's no real guard presence, yet it's still completely oppressive. So how did you design the prison and the costumes, the entire look to sell this idea that the inmates are being constantly monitored when in reality nobody's listening? And what does the design of oppression look like to you? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, and the prison for me was always like a, a cross between an abattoir and a laboratory. Uh, and yet also is, a, is a, like a labor camp, essentially, uh, that you can't escape from. It's like Alcatraz. But if Alcatraz was a lab. <laughs> so um, it, it, I just find that more interesting. I mean, it would, right from the beginning when we talked about a prison and we looked at panopticons and things like that and um, that logic of how we could make the organic material of the people be the thing that turns the machine. Uh, they're the disposable element was what, what that came from. So um, I, I think it's just way more interesting to go with something more sterile and, and stark. Uh, it's more sinister, it's more creepy, it's more THX 1138, which was a good reference, when, which we started with for the, the prison. So 
than um, say something grungy and obvious for for a prisoner. I think I don't know much you've seen, uh, but as that builds that story, uh, it will make more sense as well. Um, uh, again, it's I, I actually really love working making white sets as well. I think they they photograph beautifully. I think things pop more. I think they have a sinister nature, which I think is was just I don't know. It just it just felt more interesting for that part of the show when you look at how we break down these blocks and you know the earthiness of Ferrix against the sort of organicness of the Highlands, which is like our version of the desert, and then this kind of trap sterility of the prison. Uh, yeah, it, it it started there and then it evolved and 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 um, uh, uh, and I know my, my, Michael is the, the same really. I mean, like we yeah. Sorry, Michael. Carry on. <laughs> I think for us, we Luke and I sort of talked about you know how do those who wield the power, like the Empire, how do they, how do they use environment and color to oppress and intimidate and disorientate? And I think this palette of white on white is like there's nowhere to hide it's quite horrific you lo you lose your sense of depth because all you can see is white on white so it's you're sort of you're disempowered uh, by this soul soul destroying uh environment so we spent lots of time also developing a fabric that felt very utilitarian disposable it feels like they just peel them off at the end of the day they're treated like cattle hosed down sterilized and then they're given a, a fresh one for the next day so i kind of like all of these tiny little details that would eat away at you psychologically as a as a prisoner um they they were sort of brought into the details of the costume thank you hi this is pete fletzer from around the galaxy luke the easter egg placement in andor has arguably been the most subtle of all the live action disney star wars but it's also had some of the deepest cuts how do you work with the story group to make sure fans of the lore are served without excluding the casual fans thanks Ooh, there we go. Uh, I think it's more about just making sure that we don't start from a basis of it being fan service. So it's like, it's <laughs> it's not the first thing I think about. I think the best way to answer that is like, there's a lot of us on the show um, and we're a good mix of people who have worked on Star Wars, who are Star Wars fans and people who have absolutely no context of Star Wars. And so within that, we're all filmmakers. So we're trying to make environments that feel correct in the context that everything's there that should be, uh, and that tells a story and gives us a very kind of character-based environment. And then within that, like, okay, so what can we put in from Star Wars that rem not reminds us we're there, but actually would be there in that in that environment, in the star in the Star Wars galaxy, rather than try and slip things in for fun. So Lucent's Gallery is a very good example of something where every artifact in there, the whole collection needed to work together to tell a story of lost culture and interesting artifacts from across the galaxy, uh, of which some things uh, are there that we can recognize from previous movies or shows or, or whatever. So um, I think that's more the approach. It's like, never, never are we led by, by that. It's more about, um, you know, just things that would be that enrich that environment on that level should be there does that make sense <laughs> that good answer I don't know. completely that's great okay thank you <laughs> hi luke i'm gustavo from pride of the force and my question had to do with coruscant and the designs that had to go into coruscant because when we go into that planet we see that there's three main areas that we're telling our stories in 
it's uh, Cyril's mom's apartment, the ISB, and then Mon Mothma's apartment. And I feel it's a really big contrast, this Coruscant that we see in Andor versus the Coruscant that we saw in Attack of the Clones, which was very bright, saturated colors, lots of neon, it was a very welcoming environment. And when we see like these three locales, it's quite the opposite to an extent. There's brutalist architecture, uh, very minimal modernism, and then some art deco and Mon Mothma's apartment. So what was the process of design to like do an anti-Coruscant, so to speak, that then framed the themes of each character's story? You've almost answered your own question there, but um, <laughs> the uh, I think this is a good one for Mike, Mike, Michael to answer as well, because I think what he did with the costumes in Coruscant was phenomenal, but so, they, you know, <laughs> but the, um, okay, so basically, <laughs> I don't think, I mean, you probably, I'm not a massive fan of how Coruscant looked in the prequels. So, and I think the thing with that is it's just environment background. So uh, what I wanted to do, it's, it's, it's literally the hardest thing and I could talk for hours about why it's hard to do. And if we're gonna do it, we have to do it well. So, uh, and you don't want it to, every environment in Coruscant to be told via CGI, you know, lead element. So, uh, and equally when you're composing those CGI shots, you don't want them to feel like they wouldn't exist in a real world. So the, um, the, the kind of core principle of Coruscant is its height, its verticality, it's three miles high and it's sort of dichotomy is made up of uh, literally told, you know, the, the sort of upper at the top and the middle and middle Coruscant, the lower kind of in lower Coruscant. We don't touch on lower Coruscant that much. So um, it, it, it's, then it becomes character led which is interesting. So, and then you want to look at cities like Tokyo and New York and like what, what is a vertical, what is the language of a vertical city and what makes that interesting? That's kind of the approach. So it was never about trying to make Coruscant look like Coruscant or Ralph Macquarie's Coruscant or anything like that. It's a, it, should, it should smell like that. It should have that nostalgia, but it should fit in Star Wars. It shouldn't feel futuristic or sci-fi. And yet, it, I want it to. I want to understand it as a, a real place that could exist, and equally, we don't necessarily need to always be away from it. We want to inhabit areas within it. So it's it's really complicated. But essentially, the principles are materials. Like say, it should be monochromatic. It should be concrete. It should be steel. It should be glass. It should be things like this. It's hard. It's it's inhumane. It's um. It's there's a total lack of organic material there, and you just sort of make these decisions and you build it up, and you realize what starts to work and what doesn't work, and and then Ed's is a great one because I I mean the idea behind it is like I reckon she bought that apartment 20 years ago she had a view across Coruscant and then the whole city grew up around her and, and it got lost like she did uh and and it's got that kind of baker-like cream versus say the clinical sterility of the ISB or Mon's sort of it's kind of like Mon's place is almost like an embassy building that was given to her so it's got values of her Chandrillian culture and yet also it's it's got this sort of uh, lack of uh, I don't know comfort that it brings with Coruscant. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I really do think you should ask Michael that question because um, I think we both talked a lot about that planet in particular. I think from my point of view, um, we did what we do on all planets. You know, Luke and I uh, talked really de deep dived into the. The, the culture and we wanted to build actual real authentic societies and not just like random colors and textures for each planet but we thought about you know the culture what materials and technologies would they have how is it a stratified 
society? Is it a unified society? You know, we thought Coruscant would be very diverse. There would be people from all over the galaxy there. That's the seat of government. There's a Senate there. There's all sorts of embassies. But within, we also go deep into the core of Coruscant. So we see the different societies. Uh, we see the people that might, you know, service the buildings, the lower Coruscant. We go deeper and deeper until people are engaging in more nefarious activities. And so we wanted to represent that entire spectrum of culture. It's not like you just go to the rental house and you buy six of these things and you dive in different colors and that's your culture. We just wanted to think about every background player would have a backstory and uh, a reason for being on screen. Hi, I'm Chase, AKA That Gay Jedi. And um, I, Michael, my question is for you. I remember hearing a story that you had about Amy Adams in and her character in American Hustle and sort of this stain that you came across and found in a vintage dress that ended up becoming sort of a perfect story moment for the script and for the story. Um, so I was wondering if there are any happy accidents in your costuming process for Andor? Ooh, that's a good question. Let's see. Happy accidents. I mean, I think it was actually a little bit, there weren't actually so many accidents on this on this set, were there, uh, Luke, in the sense that the, everything was much more, there was this endless discussion and thinking about things. So I think it was, American Hustle was very of the moment and organic and um, let's just give this a go. But the, when you're working in the Star Wars universe, uh, everything really has to have a logic uh, and a reason for being on on, on camera. You know, there's going to be a lot, a lot of scrutiny over every uh, square inch of the frame, as, as you guys are very familiar <laughs> with this concept. Uh, and so you want to make sure that uh, things are there for a reason. So I, I would say there wasn't so much... Uh, accents but just uh lots of lots of deep thinking mm. thank you hello luke and michael this is sarah and richard from skywalking through neverland andor's got such a, a great visual style very very unique it's star wars without being star wars how close did you want to get to what we've seen already in star wars and what motifs did you know you wanted to work in when creating the world of andor Hmm. I don't think we ever started that way around. I think when I first met Tony, it was almost like, okay, we're going to make a Star Wars show, but it's it's not going to be like any Star Wars show that you've made, you've watched kind of thing. So, which is exciting anyway, it's just challenging. It's, it's a really hard when you start realizing that that means going into people's apartments and checking out their bathrooms and going to work with them. And, uh, <laughs> and so um, what do we want to keep? I think it was more like keeping the, Okay, so keeping the tangibility of the original three movies and then looking at Rogue One, uh, the sort of grittiness of that, finding a sense of modernity that that could compete with other shows and also make uh, work with the drama and the writing of what Tony puts together and the character-led sort of drama, but maintaining the sense of nostalgia that I think Star Wars holds so well without wanting it to become like... And I'm not saying other shows do this at all, but that was, that was partly a fear. You know, it's very easy to slip into selecting things as if from a catalogue of Star Wars in order for it to just feel Star Wars. I don't think any of us ever wanted to do that. Uh, I certainly know Michael and I didn't want to do that. It, it was about enhancing what was there uh, and then fleshing it out to make it feel uh, like you really could walk and live in this universe with these people um, and hopefully forget about it at times, forget that maybe you're watching Star Wars. Uh, and then be reminded now and again. 
that was kind of the, the goal anyway. And Michael, for the costumes, if you could weigh in, that would be amazing. Yeah, I think we knew as soon as we read the scripts that we would have to take a, a new approach to our, our creating the visuals for this um, project. You know, all of uh, Tony's characters are so, you know, detailed and complex, messed up, you know, it's, they couldn't afford to be just like two dimensional costuming, every sort of detail and layer uh, had to be thought about, you know, the, the choices would be practical character driven and not ornamental or uh, added on so which really uh, worked for me because that's the way that I, I love to work as well but there was certainly you know a, what incredible established costume language there is for Star Wars already 40 years of incredible design of some of the most talented costume designers on the planet sort of contributing their vision to, to the, the what a Star Wars world looks like so it was you know amazing to have an opportunity to take my have my own take on, on that world. And so we we wanted to definitely, you know, use the presence of things like the established uniforms and the armor to ground us really firmly into the Star Wars um, world. They, they would do a lot of work for us to sort of show the audience that yes, this is a world that they knew. Um, but then that gave us the opportunity to leap off with some of our other characters and um, try some some new ideas and show audiences um, uh, some some new compelling and surprising uh, costume ideas. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Awesome. Hi, I'm Brandon from Talking Bay 94. It's great to talk with you both. Um, I would love to, one of the things that stands out to me from other Star Wars things is we see a lot of personal rooms and personal belongings in this show, right? And I think it's kind of a, a cross with a lot of these characters, right? You see Cassian's room, you see serials, you see all these like actual personal belongings. And I'd be interested with both the production design of it all, but then also feeling comfortable in someone's apartment with the costuming and with actually like laying out how someone is in their own home rather than in an ISB or in a security office. How do you approach that? And what were you trying to communicate with some of these characters when we delve into their personal lives? Um, I mean, like any project I think you try and get a sense of the character into the space so uh, uh, I think Mar sort of Marvis for example the idea behind that was uh, you had the sense of a home that was fully functioning you know when Cassian was younger when she raised it and he's grown up and he's kind of grifting and she's lost her husband and the business is shut down and there's that sort of centralizing around her her chair <laughs> that that's her world is literally getting smaller and she can't cope with the pace in this time and then i was saying with Edie's apartment i think you know it's almost like she bought it was box fresh you could get upgrades and plugins to the apartment and then over time it's just it's aged and become a bit more bakelite over time and it, i mean rebecca as well said does a really fantastic job of just sort of getting under the skin of what people would have because we can't have paper and can't do the normal sort of texture of life so we have to be very selective and actually more thoughtful like so in Edie's we're really cooked into this idea that she has this home salon in the corner which you never see in season one <laughs> but it's there and she sort of it's like a Star Wars version with a sort of like hair, hair do kind of set up all these things that actually feel um, relatable and yet also in a Star Wars language. I think, you know, it, it's an endless conversation. It's a fantastic question, actually. But it, yeah, it, it's always character. It always starts from the character. And I think from my point of view, um, 
I agreed. I have to chime in with that. It, it starts with the character. And I, I mean, the joy of working with Luke is that I feel like you design spaces like the character would design the spaces. It's like you, you think so much about who they are and what they want to project with their interiors. And I, I try to do the same with um with with the costumes um so you know if it's the difference between wearing something tight and structured and how that makes you feel compared to something like layers that you can disappear in like we see Cassian at the beginning disappearing into his clothes hiding then his arc throughout the, the series is to become closer to the hero that we know from Rogue One. So, you know, his subtly, little bit by little bit, his his coats become a bit more tailored. He's less hiding. He's revealing himself a little more, perhaps longer lines, the, the, the shoulders square out. So it's this very subtle um, subliminal transformation that, that he's going through. Um, so it's, it's things like that, like how, how do clothes make me feel? What do they say about, what I'm trying to achieve in this scene, how I'm feeling on this day, all of those very personal tweaks I um, I incorporate into my costume design work. Thanks very much, uh, James and Julian News here. Um, so to Michael, I'd like to ask please about Cyril's unique costuming and um, the way that he tailors all his own um, costumes, because I mean, obviously there's a big thing made about that in the show and, um, I'm just wondering if there's anything more to that because it's I mean obviously it's very much part of his character but it it comes across and it's you know and then to Luke obviously um I loved your work on Chernobyl and um you know that was that was incredible and I see quite a lot of what you did there is very very similar in Andor because you've got you're seeing people up front and personal some of the things that you've already described so how do, how do you go about coming from a show like that um to Star Wars um, what's what's the juxtaposition there, and 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 how did you go about that into into you know coming off something as big as that, where you're telling a real story into something like this? Michael, do you want to go first? I'll, I'll go first. Um, I'm really glad you picked up on the pre-more uniforms because I really enjoyed creating them. Usually, uniforms are like that, exactly that. They're uniform, and they everyone looks the same in them. But with preox. I wanted to explore that, you know, even within a uniform, you can, people find ways of expressing themselves. And so we have the schlumpy guys that are working out in the bullpen, those jaded office workers that are just like not at all engaged. And they are, we, we sort of uh, enzyme washed their costumes. So they were faded out and not ironed and um, no pride in their appearance. At the other end of the spectrum, you have Cyril who, tailors he makes his costumes he he makes small tweaks of them personalizes them so that they're more expressive of what he wants to project uh, and who he wants to be so he's got this very fastidious approach to costuming so we made his costume subtly more um i guess uh, more rigid more sculpted uh freshly pressed a slightly brighter color so even within this world of uniforms we're hopefully able to do a bit of storytelling about the different people in the scene brilliant thank you um, okay so uh, i guess the short answer is every the process is the same with every project whether whatever the whatever it is um the similarities between doing a project like chernobyl and, and and a star wars project generally i think is that it's there's a lot of research it's still it's almost like researching a period or an event um there's a lot 
I mean, there's an endless amount in Star Wars. It's, it's, it's a life of its own. It's, it really is. It's like, so you want to distill that, but you don't want to get lost in it. Um, in the same way with Chernobyl, you want to distill a mood without getting lost in being documentarian completely. Uh, so, I mean, Chernobyl's, although fantastically rewarding, incredibly hard, but um, the difference there was, I guess we had five very fleshed out scripts. When we started Star Wars, Tony was taking it on at the same time I just started. So we were we were literally building it at the same time as he was writing. Um, but still, I think, yeah, it's it's the same principle. So it, it's uh, it's about you know yeah, it's, it's about character and environment and, and and storytelling, and then it's about mood and tone. And so with Chernobyl, it was like you could tell the story a thousand different ways, but it has to have a tone um uh which you know otherwise yeah you can make a documentary but we're not we're making drama and the same with this it's like we wanted this to have an almost sort of doc or journalistic logic so you approach it like you're dealing with building up every character's reality and yet at the same time we're making uh, obviously fiction <laughs> obviously a drama so um in that sense, I don't think there's any difference. I, I, I obviously the material's a lot lighter, well, at times uh, <laughs> on Star Wars, but the uh, and uh, and the worlds are much greater and more varied. Um, it, it it both were rabbit holes, to be honest, <laughs> from a design point of view. And I think the biggest thing they 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 have in common is that I never felt like I. You only ever run out of time. I could layer these sets for much longer. I could create, you know, I'd love to go further, but you run out of time and you have to shoot them at some point. Um, and uh, so I don't know, it, it is a, it's actually been hugely enjoyable to work on or play in the sandpit of Star Wars because uh, it's not something I expected to do, certainly not something I expected to do next. Um, yeah, I do really appreciate how different it is in the terms of its actual source material um but also how actually freeing it's been to be able to do it in a way that is okay but i don't i mean like oh, i'm gonna say we wanted it to be fresh you know and i hopefully we've achieved some semblance of that that that's been both the challenge and the satisfaction if that makes sense great thank you evening all mark from fanta tracks here um hello. there's a lot of hello there's a lot of real world locations in andor you filmed in cleveland there is stuff around by the barbican i was walking around the other day and found some of the places there when you're or when location scouting's done and your work's done what's the consideration for making it work as a location work for ilm work for easy access is there a lot of different things you've got to factor in or do you just literally look and go i like that corridor i want to i want us to film down there and work in how does it work um certainly not the latter <laughs> i think it's again it goes back to like where we when we put this project together we were offering things up as well as designs we were offering up locations i love working on and building on location and we ideally would have done a lot more it's quite hard to take such a large unit on location but it's also quite hard especially when you're doing pandemic so we we kind of ended up building a lot more than maybe we initially intended but um there was sort of some basic principles, really. I didn't want to do a desert, but I wanted something where the landscape spoke for itself. And so like, well, what if we had a planet that felt like 
the Scottish Highlands, you know, so that was a good starting point as a, and then we were looking at dams and we found one in particular that always just felt like such a blight on the landscape. Um, they're gonna love me for saying that, uh, that uh, it just felt very imperial as a kind of logic. And so that whole Aldani sequence came based around that idea that there, that was an imperial stronghold there and so on and so on and so on. And, and so um, it's, it's, actually quite a big question because Coruscant like I said was one of the hardest things we had to do and I at Barbican I've always felt had the both the weight and the texture that felt right for a mega city like Coruscant but also felt right for a certain level at the mid-level of Coruscant um, obviously there is work within there but we never sort of approached the location on the basis of you know, we didn't concept something and Moen, who's the VFX supervisor, who's, who's like literally with us from day one, like he is a massive part of this show, has great taste. Um, so it's never led by that. It's always about how can we enhance this real place or how can we put it within the wider world of Coruscant? How can we do shots that you would do in a real city and not in a CGI environment? So it's like, it's a huge question, but um, you know, like I always said that the best place to shoot Coruscant would be Paris because you've got both the scale and the sort of uh, like uh, style of certain aspects of Coruscant. It's slim pickings in London, I've got to tell you. But uh, uh, and then and then and then and then I don't know. I mean, uh, is that getting close to answering your question? <laughs> I think so. It just struck me as we were walking around. There was, you know, you'd literally turn around. There was one corridor there that we turned around when Vel and Clayla met. And then there's the steps when they had the meeting. And then you walk a little bit and there's the corridor and you just picked like a doorway, literally mm. just a doorway and everything else was changed. I'm just thinking of you guys walking around thinking that doorway looks good, that corridor looks good. <laughs> I mean, you know? basically, yeah, with the Barbican, yeah, you're a little more limited, you're a little bit more like uh, what's the targeted, I suppose. Yeah. But I guess what I was always looking for when piecing together Coruscant was journeys. So again, it wasn't like, oh, well, let's stand here and have a conversation with the city in the background or something like yeah. that. So Barbican is actually gives you a lot in terms of journeys. Um, the Cyril going home uh, is one of my favourites, I think. It's that's... Um, I can't remember the name of the place now. Um, that's in London, and it's uh, it, it is it's a, it's like a brutalist estate. And um, yeah, I mean, all we really did was sort of make it go much further down and, and give it that elevation and uh, uh, and and that sort of sense of depression, I suppose. But um, yeah, it's it's really hard. Like I want to shoot more on location. Off more often than not, we pull back from doing a location. We use location as an inspiration. I mean, for me, location scouting is one of the most inspiring things to do. But the um, yeah, I mean, look, our location manager Rich, he's sort of like he's worked very hard to find things that feel, or at least have the bones of Star Wars, and then yeah. we kind of go from there. <laughs> <laughs> Magic. Thanks for that. Thank you. Well, first of all, I'm ready now for the British spinoff podcast uh, with both of you guys. But yeah, uh, Alden and Nikki here with Octo Radio, and we're we're both so interested in the growth that's happening in both of your respective fields, Luke and Michael, um, and how that's expanding. Yeah, so like with the volume, for example, dominating so many sort of entertainment conversations. Uh, what are some perhaps uh, under-discussed artistic or technological innovations in the world of production and costume design that, that we may not know about, but played a huge role in creating Andor? Oh, Michael, do you want to go first? Because I know you've got a... Um, yeah, interesting question. I think for me, 
because we were kind of leaning um, heavily into the the, the DNA of of, this, of this, the look of the Star Wars um, established costume language, it's it's actually quite an analog costume, you know, approach. Uh, well, it's a mixture, in fact. Like there is things that would have been groundbreaking in 1977, uh, as far as the costumes go, um, that seem not so groundbreaking now. Um, but we we kind of like to have that as a starting point. We we had a similar approach with this one. We there were lots of handmade, like old school analog created costumes, but we also have a fantastic uh, costume props department that is using new technologies, new new materials. Um, to create um, mostly armored elements or, um, you know, small sculpted elements that you see on costuming. Uh, there's lots of 3D printing that happens, scanning of things and then adapting things. Uh, we're constantly trying new urethanes and different uh, materials that might make more comfortable armor. We made a, um, a lot of the, the problem with the original stormtroopers is that they um, they changed color over, over time the, and the, the white, of the originals turned yellow over the years and and it was also quite rigid and difficult to do certain stunts like moves in so yeah we explored some new new materials to make our um stormtroopers that would stay white forever and that would be um, comfortable for our stunt people to wear uh, and uh, so yeah it's a very beautiful and organic mixture of uh, analog and 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 new costume making uh, techniques. I would so fully agree with that. I'd say we're um, back, not back to basics. No, we're not doing anything groundbreaking in the art department here. But, uh, <laughs> I think just it was an active choice not to use the volume. It doesn't suit our goal. Uh, it certainly doesn't suit Tony's writing. So. Um, uh, the idea is to be on the ground and moving around with the characters as much as possible not creating sort of spaces for scenes to happen in if that makes sense so actually it is something that actually can do more with a long episodic drama like this or multi-episodic drama you build just bigger sets that you can just connect them up i mean it, it's it's sort of um i think ferrix was comprised of almost 30 sets they're all largely out on the back lot as one large composite set so you could literally walk down north street round onto the main street down there round to marvas into marvas you know it it, it, it that that process was although complex was very enjoyable and i suppose the most uh, sort of modern part of that is is that we, like with any of the sets I would usually just start by designing the whole thing hmm. so design the city design the prison in full design and then start to break it down and what we want to use how what bits we want to build at least then we understand the full geography we understand right. our rules um, and I think that filters through even if you don't see it all you you don't it doesn't hopefully jar at any point so um, then I mean, and then a huge element of that is like, you know, if you're going to go that step, we, we sort of model everything. It was just actually, that was another thing we did on Chernobyl. We built the whole power plant and sort of worked out what we actually needed to physically make. And, um, and um, sorry, built it in 3D, should I say? Not <laughs> and, uh, and then, uh, and likewise uh, with Ferrix, and then we can kind of previs from that. So a director, when we've got many directors, can start to actually plan because, you know, the set's not going to be standing there for them to plan on um there's not really we don't follow a pipeline like they do over in on manhattan beach for for the for the volume shows at all 
uh, we don't have that aspect. We're much more, I suppose, analog is 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 kind of, you know, it, then that feeds into what we wanted to achieve. You know, we want we wanted it to feel a little bit like the original movies in the sense that it was tangible, more like that. So, um, and yeah, I don't I don't don't think there's anything groundbreakingly new about what we're doing other than that we are trying to do it um more uh i don't know trying to i guess trying to compile all the resources to make put more on the screen but not but but make it feel like it's less there's someone no, after that there's no yet like the luke hall technique has not been coined yet <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if there is, I haven't figured it out yet. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I'm still working out how to do my job with every project. And that's part of the beauty of my job and why I enjoy it. I think once I've figured out how to do it, I'll be bored of it. So uh, it's, um, it's no, it, it, like I said, it, it, it's a complexity with this is that you've got so many other facets. You've got creatures, special effects, sliding doors, you know, um, vehicles that, that have to hover or whatever. So everything has to be designed i think that's the, the thing that sometimes gets for, forgotten with this we're not like i said we're in our ambition to not select from the catalog we have set ourselves a huge task that everything has to be designed and made so um and that there's no uh mystery to it i just have a very good team full <laughs> 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 of very very skilled and clever people around me uh, and and i uh, yes i'm i'm huge, hugely humbled to them for being able to achieve a show like andor and that's the end of the interviews thanks so much for watching or listening along there are links to all of the other shows in the description as well as daniel jose older's great thread on the panopticon if you haven't already please like this video subscribe to the channel for all our andor coverage follow us on tiktok twitter and instagram and consider checking out our patreon page for our video reactions and audio commentaries for every new episode and you can check out this playlist for all of our existing andor content as always thanks for watching and may the force be with you